Some composers like Beethoven or Oliver Nelson, keys have these psychological bases. Mm. And Beethoven had a bit of an obsession with the key of C minor. And overwhelmingly in his C minor works, they um, modulate to C major. So this idea of the heroic journey, which a lot of people see as central to Beethoven's central period, you can see that epitomized in C minor, struggle, 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 and triumph is C major. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Hilaritas Podcast, brought to you by Hilaritas Press. I am your host, Mike Gathers. Join us as we explore the world of iconic writer Robert Anton Wilson, those who influenced him and those who have been influenced by him. Visit us at hilaritaspress.com slash podcast for show notes, links, and past episodes. And while you're out and about on the internet, please take a minute, help us spread the word and find the others by sharing this episode, leaving a review, a rating, a thumbs up, and or a comment. You know what to do. It helps more than you might think. In our last episode, I spoke with Phil Farber on Magic and NLP. Today, I speak with teacher, author, and raw scholar, Eric Wagner on Beethoven and Robert Anton Wilson. Eric Wagner, welcome to the Laritas podcast. Hello. Hello, hello. We have probably been interacting in some way, shape, or form for nearly 25 years. I discovered Robert Anton Wilson around 1998, and I don't think it was very long after that that I... uh, discovered alt.fan.ra Wilson, the Usenet group, which which I, I believe Michael doesn't like to take credit for this, I don't think, but he essentially created that group, as I understand it. He, I, he told me the story that he had written, to, he had his AOL account and he wrote to AOL and he was like, hey, I think we need a, a group for this guy. I think he's really important. And they created alt.fan.ra Wilson Bay. I guess that's AOL. I don't know. But, uh, and boy, what a cast of characters that and was. It, in the it, late it's 90s. interesting. The one time I met you and Michael in the flesh in 2007 in Santa Cruz. Yeah. So I met Brian Shields, who I believe started Ray Wilson fans group on Facebook. Right. And he and I. I had a conversation about Beethoven and he was asking if I knew what ring of Beethoven's ninth Bob Wilson liked. And I mm. didn't. And Brian was sort of saying, yeah, I bet he probably has Carrion or something like that. Uh, and talked about how much he likes the wartime Furt Wangler uh record ninth. And I think I sent you Rafisa Boar's wonderful write-up of the wartime Furt Wangler. You sent me, yeah, you sent me a variety of things. I read a a couple of the Amazon reviews from Rafi, and I read the the discussion with with Leonard Bernstein and his friend in the car, and uh, and then the 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 bit from Illuminati papers. And it turns out, I found out, I didn't realize this, but I guess Tom Jackson's a bit of a Beethoven aficionado. So there's a fair amount of Beethoven material in his blog that I've been rifling through. Um, 
Oh, but I didn't, I, you know, Brian Shields, that's funny because I guess his, uh, he was a metalhead, like a hardcore metalhead, but uh, had some Beethoven in him too, huh? Yeah, and, and Michael Johnson, I think, loves heavy metal as well. Uh, that's true, right. I want to get into Beethoven, but before that, like, how did you find Robert Anton Wilson? I'm sure that story is out there, but I refresh my memory. What was your introduction? I sort of think I had read some bits of him in a, like the People's Encyclopedia or something like that from the 70s had some bits from his Playboy book, so I didn't identify him as a human being yet. I used to, in the early 80s, I loved the fanzine science fiction review that had, I think, the Neil Wilgus interview with Bob that would later be in Neil mm. Wilgus's a second volume of interviews. And Bob wrote a number of little short pieces there. And I used to love Spider Robinson, who was at that point writing book review routes for Analog. And mm. he wrote a really interesting piece, sort of a meditation on the death of John Lennon. This is like early 82. And he sort of said, I've just read a book that has the sort of cosmic optimism that we need right now in response to something horrible like the death of John Lennon. And he, it was his review of Illuminati papers. So all that sort of filed in the back of my brain. And there's a wonderful bookstore in Tempe, Arizona called Changing Hands Bookstore. And I would, I love science fiction back then. And I sort of glanced at the science fiction section and the cover of Schrodinger's Cat 1, The Universe Next Door, kept catching my eye. And that original paperback had a woman's face superimposed on a cat's face or the other way around. Right. I just thought it was an arresting image. And I sort of said, oh yeah, that's that guy I read that weird interview with an SFR and Spider wrote about him. Uh, oh, interesting, interesting. I'm doing that for maybe three months and I finally buy it 40 years ago last month, in fact, first week of May, 1982. Wow. I read it and I said, oh, this is an interesting book. Um, I'm going to Arizona State in Tempe, but the summers I'm working in Tucson, live with my parents. We go up to Scottsdale to visit my grandparents 40 years ago, like this week, June. And my sister and I drive down to Tempe, visit the science fiction bookstore, the one bookshop. I see, oh, there's a Schrodinger's Cat too. Hmm. I buy that. And then I'm totally suckered in. And I totally <laughs> buy into this umwelt. And uh, um, one thing I found interesting, my mother was born in St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Boston. She later worked in Washington, D.C., where there's a mental hospital called St. Elizabeth's, where Ezra Pound stayed. So when mm. she would tell people in Washington that she was born in St. Elizabeth, they would look at her funny. Mm. They would think of the St. Elizabeth's in Washington. And in one of those first Illumin uh, Schrodinger's Cat books, there's a parallel universe where Ed Ezra Pound is in St. Elizabeth's with Alger Hiss. And they're talking about Nixon's checkers speech. And so I'd never heard of Ezra Pound at that point, but I knew St. Elizabeth because of my mother. So anyway, I fall down the rabbit hole and I read Schrodinger's Cat 3. Then I buy Illuminatus. I'm reading that. Get to about the beginning of September 40 years ago. I read the first 23 pages or so of Mass of the Illuminati. And I stop. 
And I say, if I keep going this, it's going to change my whole way of dealing with reality. <laughs> my rationalist, Robert Heinlein, math major, gestalt. And I wait a couple of weeks and I say, what the F? I finished Mass Illuminati and here we are. Oh, that's fantastic. Seeing me prime. And really just diving in from the science fiction angle and going, it was took me a while to build up to Illuminatus and Schrodinger's cat, to be frank. Uh, I found masks very accessible, but those other books were just beyond me. So I, I find that fantastic that you just dove right into the, the deep end there. And then when you got to masks, you had to put a pause on, on things. That's, that's fabulous. And, and talk to and me about, thing was go ahead. Oh, just that fall when I read masks for the first time, I started sharing those books with my friends and for me reading masks, I had a fair background in Einstein and relativity. I'd never read Joyce, never heard of Aleister Crowley. My friend, Paul Chewy had read Crowley, didn't know Einstein or Joyce. His future wife, Kathy, had just read Ulysses, knew very little about Einstein or Crowley. So nice. the three of us read that book from three different angles with some background. And so it's interesting, we encountered three very different texts. Mm, that's fair. So, and was there like a discussion between the three of you and unpacking all this or? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, you, and, and this is something uh, I just wrote about over at, at Tom uh, Jackson's blog. Over the decades, I've become more and more fascinated with Pound and Joyce. And I go back and forth with how much I agree or disagree with Bob about them. Mm. You know, and, and it's interesting, especially thinking about Joyce, the Orthodox Joyceans have certain ways of dealing with Joyce. And Bob, I think, had a very deep knowledge of Joyce, but he doesn't see Joyce the way the Orthodox Joyceans do. And so, you know, every few years I come back and say, well, yeah, 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 Wilson had these good ideas that he didn't understand really well. Then I come back and say, oh, no, well, maybe, maybe Bob had a better idea than I thought. And so I keep going back and forth with that over the last 40 years. So what would you and say... Orthodox Joycean view is? If you could summarize the, the dialectic between those two views. Well, and again, you have a lot of different Orthodox Joycean views, but sure. for instance, the final chapter of Finnegan's Wake, most Joyceans see as tragic. Mm. Wilson quotes from that chapter to when he starts talking about the eighth circuit in Prometheus rising. And he has this very, you know, revolutionary view of Joyce dealing with higher consciousness. And so the idea of Finnegan's Wake dealing with the brokenhearted Anna going back to the sea and her father and being abandoned seems to dominate a lot of Orthodox Joycean view of the wake. Whereas for me, coming to it from a Wilsonian angle, when I first read Finnegan's Wake in the 80s, I thought as we were about to rise, this whole wonderful Eighth Circuit revelation, all these sort of things that has some sadness in it, too. Uh, and in the same way, uh, John Bishop wrote a very highly regarded book on Finnegan's Wake. And he wrote the introduction to one edition of Finnegan's Wake where he quotes Bob Wilson. I thought that that's sort of cool to me. But Bob didn't like it because he thought he misrepresented Bob's views and oversimplified them. Hmm. And this is something, if, if you could get Michael John to talk to you about this, 
he, I think, has some deep understanding of this as well. Because, you know, Joyce, you know, I'm sorry, Wilson, you know, he connected with the, the, the whole Orthodox Joycean tradition, but he definitely came to it from as an outsider and a non-academic. Right. Fascinating. And, and just a different with that multidimensional eight circuit perspective, I can see where he's accessing different points of view that the Orthodox crowd might be missing. Um, which, which kind of brings me to, to Beethoven, which was going to be our subject for today. And, and boy, there's a lot I want to ask you. Maybe you, we can start here by how you got into Beethoven. Well, Beethoven marks the culture in very interesting ways. I just watched Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness yesterday, which has a whole Beethoven sequence, which... Mm. You know, just he he, he 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 we find him here. When you first contacted me about this interview that week, what month was that? It was, was a while it Easter. Back. Yeah, it was like Easter. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but Easter morning, Lizzo hosted Saturday Night Live, and she played the Ode to Joy on her flute. And then that night, they used Beethoven's uh, Ninth Symphony on Fear the Walking Dead. And a gentleman played the Ode to Joy on the accordion. And then the mm. following week, Breaking Bad had the Emperor Concerto. Not Breaking Bad, a Better Call Saul had the Emperor Concerto. So I think it's interesting how he still, he marks the culture in so many ways. Um, yeah, what came up for me when I was studying all this was Clockwork Orange and how that, uh, the you know, the protagonist, the antagonist had a big, crush on Beethoven, the Ludwig van. Yeah, and I actually, I just wrote about that in my blog Monday at uh, uh, illumination.org talks about uh, Prometheus Rising and Clockwork Orange. Anthony Burgess, who wrote the novel, very influenced by James Joyce. Mm. <laughs> For me, in, in first grade, my teacher played Haydn's Surprise Symphony for us, which I found really cool. And I found out that Haydn had been Beethoven's teacher. And so I said, well, Beethoven seems all right to me because he had Haydn for a teacher. But I, I've always sort of liked the people who are, are not as recognized. So I sort of preferred Haydn to Beethoven and, and Mozart as a little kid. And like I had those little Beethoven and, and Mozart records for kids. And I remember seeing a show on PBS that talked about Beethoven and it had a scene with him studying with Haydn. So I, I found that really cool. Um, we had an eight track tape player and my mom had an eight track tape of, what's his name? Uh, Texas pianist, Ben Clyburn, playing famous Beethoven piano sonatas. And she had a couple LPs of like the fifth, seventh and ninth symphonies. And, uh, so I sort of had those and I was aware of those. I, I played as a pianist in 10th grade. I think I was working on Opus 49, number one, which is one of the easiest um, Beethoven uh, piano sonatas. Mm -hmm. and, and around 1980, I became best friends with Jay Jeffries. He was my college roommate, a classical pianist. And through him, he's the one who first told me about the Hammerklugger Sonata. 
So again, when I first read Robert Anton Wilson, he talks a ton about the Hammerklavier in uh, Schrodinger's Cat. And I had heard about that from Jay and Jay's pianist friends. And I also had the great blessing that Jay was preparing to play Opus 110 by Beethoven on his sophomore piano recital. So I got to hear him work on that and play it live all a whole bunch that year. So that was a real blessing to sort of see him play, to get to sit in the room with the score, listen to him play it, give my feedback, et cetera. And I was playing bass in the orchestra at ASU and we played the seventh symphony. We read through the third symphony and then we played, I think, the first movement of the Beethoven's third concerto. So again, the, the physical experience of sitting in a bass section feeling the vibration through the floor mm. playing the seventh symphony was a wonderful thing. Also Arizona state, we would have a lot of orchestras coming through. So I got to hear Garrett Schulte conduct the Chicago symphony doing the eighth symphony. I heard the Academy of St. Martin in the field directed by um, Iona Brown do the third symphony. And so what, and of course, hanging out there, you got to chit chat with people. And so musicians all have their different takes on Beethoven. My modernist people, you know, who say, we won't play dead composers, jazz people having their take, et cetera, et cetera. Really interesting. If you look at the literature of the psychedelics in the 1960s, so many people use Beethoven's ninth as a touchstone. Hmm. You see it showing up in John Lilly's writing, in Timothy Leary's writing, and Robert Anton Wilson's writing. Uh, it, it's sort of, it, it, he, and... You can go way back. If you go back to Homer, you've got this idea of the hero as the warrior. Mm. We move into the Christian era and you have Dante's pilgrim as a hero. With the age of revolution in the 18th century, you have this balance between faith and reason. And more and more, the culture turns towards reason in a lot of ways. If you look at the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Scientific Revolution, they all tilt towards reason away from faith. As this say, if you look at literature, then we're no longer saying maybe we don't want somebody who's just a, a bloodthirsty Conan the Barbarian. We don't necessarily we, we we have skepticism about religion. You've got this idea of the artist as hero. Mm. And Beethoven plays that role so perfectly. He overcomes deafness to create great art. So you can see in the 19th century, early 20th century, Beethoven has this sort of archetype. Although I find it interesting that for Bob's modernist heroes like Pound and Joyce, they didn't privilege Beethoven. Pound very much privileged Bach above all others. Uh, Joyce loved Italian opera and, and Irish music. But you can sort of see this idea of the artist as hero coming under attack in the postmodern period because so many of the Nazis loved so-called great music. Mm. Uh, you know, Heydrich would be planning the Holocaust and then go play Beethoven string quartets. So this idea that great art was going to prevent human catastrophe just certainly didn't seem to make sense. But in the 1980s, you sort of have this archetypal assault by Mozart on the castle of Beethoven. You've got mm. the movie and play Amadeus. You've mm. got that rock song Amadeus, Amadeus. And so this idea of Mozart as the greatest of all time 
coming up against this archetype of Beethoven. And you got little assaults like Beethoven being sexist and this, that, and the other thing. Uh, and so for me, living through that, and I, I was never a music major, but a lot of my friends were music majors. So I got to sort of see this process playing out. That's a long answer to your question. No, that's wonderful. So what, what was it about Beethoven that captured you? Maybe you touched into that already, but. I remember staying home sick from work the summer of 80. And stay at my parents' house and at my mom's record of Beethoven 7, kind of hit by Toscanini, and listening to that and just thinking that was just so cool. And then that laid the groundwork for chit-chatting with Jay as he and I became really good friends. And then chatting with all my other music major friends. So it's sort of like encountering the music and then talking with people about it. And then going back and encountering the music again, playing it, listening it. And so it's part of that whole, and, you know, being 18 and 19 as we move from Jimmy Carter's America to Ronald Reagan's America. Uh, it's sort of that, that, that music was very much there for me as, uh, you know, and, you know, the, the, the arguments of jazz versus rock versus classical improvised music versus written music, you know, what role does music have in our society? And for me, my predominant musical interest was jazz. So I would be arguing with the classical musicians in favor of improvisation. And then they would say, well, look at this Beethoven or this Mozart or this, you know, Chopin, whatever. And so that really got me thinking because I valued improvisation so much, you know, and again, I was not a deadhead yet, but I, I valued this improvisational ethic. And so say, what is there in what Beethoven did? And then um, 1990, I started taking ballet classes and I became obsessed by that. Hmm. And that made me reevaluate my musician background. Uh, Gary Grafton, the pianist, wrote a book called I Really Should Be Practicing. And I notice even today among some of my class musician friends, they really don't care about academic musicology. And they sort of poo-poo me when I talk about it. Okay. And it's like musicians play music, those who can't play teach. You know, and so <laughs> whenever I, you know, I always, I love to read about things, but I would felt, felt guilty as a musician. It's like, you really should be practicing. You're going to learn more about music by practicing. You're going to learn by studying. And in ballet class, they were very much, don't practice. You're going to do it wrong. You know, mm-hmm. do some abs, then come back to class. Okay. <laughs> because you, 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 okay. So that was great for my laziness. So I started listening to classical music and I started reading about it. And it's like for the first time, I feel guilt free about reading musicology. Mm. And I fall in love with reading musicology, especially the writings of Joseph Kerman and Charles Rosen. And so it's like I get to really rethink about classical music from an academic, analytical and historical perspective without the idea, like, you really should be practicing, Eric. You know, you'd be a much better musician if you were practicing instead of reading these books about Beethoven. Who cares about the Enlightenment? You should be practicing your scales. Um, And so there, I get really into Joseph Kerman and Charles Rosen's books, and they tie Beethoven in with 
everything in European history. Oh, and wow. all these different psychological things, it, it just becomes so fascinating. And it's like there's a line that Bob Wilson quotes in Mass Illuminati you, from the Upanishads. If you remove infinity, you get infinity back from it. You remove, remove infinity from infinity, infinity remains. And the critic Harold Bloom said that about James Joyce. James mm-hmm. Joyce rewards the reader based on how effort they put into it. The right. more time you spend studying Joyce, the more you get out of it. And Bloom said that's different than something like Goethe, where he asserts that no matter how hard you try, you're never going to understand Faust Part Two. But it's always like, you know, there's, there's some music I become obsessed with, and then it's like, eh. And so music that I loved as a teenager, I don't necessarily, you know, now it may, may make me, uh, you know, have these memories, but I don't necessarily want to dig that deeply into it. You know, I'll get deeply into Led Zeppelin here and there and went to, but I don't like when I say, oh my gosh, I really got to study musicologically what's going on here. Whereas every time I come back to Beethoven, there's so much more and stuff that I haven't heard and stuff, you know, you know that it, uh, and then, so I, I keep coming back to it over and over again over my whole life, really. 55 years I've been listening to Beethoven uh, and it keeps rewarding me in lots of different ways. Mm, that's fantastic. So it, it strikes me as as like Joyce and probably Pound and others, but there's just kind of a, a bottomless depth of to explore within the music itself. And, and I mean, more so than Pound and Joyce. Mm. It's like, you know, because with Pound, you've got these reprehensible side. <laughs> so it's like I get deep into Pound and I get turned off. And, you know, he, he does have a lot of great things to say. He does seem like a very great teacher, even though he seems severely messed up. Um, right. Joyce, I can say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I love him and all that, but I don't necessarily, it's like, I want to, I want to finish up this Joyce Wilson book I'm writing, but I, 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 after that, I, I think I've had enough. Although, you know, who knows? I may come back to it in a deep way. Whereas Beethoven, you know, and even, I mean, there's an exercise near the end of Prometheus Rising where he says, imagine you live to be 300. What would you like to do? I imagine I will keep listening to Beethoven, although part of me thinks there's more inherent health in Mozart's music for me right now. Mm. Near the end of either Schrodinger's Cat 2 or Schrodinger's Cat 3, there's a passage where the narrative voice says, some people like to think of evolution as a Promethean struggle. But really, you just have to cooperate with the DNA code. And I think of that in terms of, you know, Promethean struggle very much epitomizes Joyce's work. I'm sorry, uh, um, Beethoven's work. And there's that bit in quantum psychology where Bob says, instead of thinking of the DNA code, think of the morphogenic fields in Sheldrake's notion. So if you cooperate with the morphogenic fields, that seems like a less stressful model than Promethean struggle. And Mm. so I think the model of Promethean struggle is built in so much into Beethoven's music. Whereas I think that cooperation with the morphogenic fields is more in Mozart music. So I think it might be healthier for me over the next 240 years to listen to more Mozart, but I'll keep listening to Beethoven too. Gotcha. There's something about going with the flow with Mozart. Is that? Yes. Yes, sir. And with Beethoven, I have to admit, I'm not classical savvy. I've listened and I've, I've tried to listen, but never gone very far but it just in researching this um well for example in illuminati papers the beethoven as information essay 
refers to Odysseus. And, and that it doesn't say that explicitly, but what came up for me is what you mentioned, the hero's journey. Um, and part of what I get out of this music and what makes it special is that it contains highs and lows. It contains what we might call the lower circuits and the upper circuits. It contains ups and downs. Um, it's just a very dynamic range of expression. Would you agree with that? Amen. Uh, okay. One of my favorite essays about Beethoven, there's a book by Joseph Herman called Write All These Down, which has a number of essays by Herman and, and including a number of terrific essays on, on Beethoven. And he has an essay called Beethoven's Minority, which looks at Beethoven's use of minor keys. Mm. And it, it, it's interesting, again, I, some of my musician friends say key doesn't matter. You can just transpose it, whatever somebody can sing in. It doesn't make any difference. Whereas for some composers like Beethoven or Oliver Nelson, keys have these psychological bases. Mm. And Beethoven had a bit of an obsession with the key of C minor. And overwhelmingly in his C minor works, they um, modulate to C major. So this idea of the heroic journey, which a lot of people see as central to Beethoven's central period, you can see that epitomized in C minor, struggle, 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 and triumph is C major. You can see that in Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, tons of piano sonatas. Uh, it plays out in larger works like the opera uh, uh, Fidelio, and you see it called the culmination in uh, Beethoven's last piano sonata, Opus 111, and I find it interesting that Robert Anton Wilson died on 111 back in 2007. Mm. And of course, the number 111 plays a central role in Finnegan's Wake and in Aleister Crowley's numerology. So there's these, what, what came up for me, I wonder what you'll think of this parallel, but this really, this exploration of highs and lows brought me to the Grateful Dead. Um, yeah. There's a lot of things about the Grateful Dead we could talk about, but I think one of the really great parts of their music is it it will take you to the deepest depths of of despair. I think of like Warfrat and just the the down and out despair and grief, but bringing you up at the end with a message of hope. And um, it seems like that's one of the the real strong points of Beethoven uh, as I'm reading is just how he concludes things and leaves you feeling like all's right in the world after you've gone through the, the ringer of ups and downs. Does that fit with that, you? That, cer that, that certainly seems reasonable. Um, I remember playing Warfrat for a music theory class I was teaching a few years ago. Hmm. Uh, and we were sort of listening to music and, and listening to the lyrics. Uh, but, you know, it, it, interesting people have different levels of, of connection. And I think about people who connect with the Grateful Dead. I'm curious what your response would be if you got to hear a little Beethoven in person. And if that physical experience would be a different one. Because like, I never got to see the dead live. I right. did turn down a backstage pass once in 1990 because oh I didn't want to miss ballet class. 
which is a regret. Um, but I think about my education has been so much passion driven. And I think that's very, very much what you see in a lot of, of Beethoven's music. And it, there's, there's a, a cassette I have of Robert Anton Wilson talking about Beethoven and how Beethoven thought he had bad luck romantically. Hmm. But Wilson talks about how Beethoven sort of programmed himself. He kept falling in love with people who were, you know, in a higher social station than he was or were married, you know, that he, he, uh, um, he, he just, you know, he, he, you know he, he thought he was this miserable bachelor, which of course he was, and he had his deafness and his difficult personality. But the idea that in some ways he sort of made a program to that reality. I also think there was a textbook I used to from in a college English class that talked about musical ethics and saying how much better a human being uh, Beethoven was than John Dovey. And it was talking about relationships. And I thought, well, man, Beethoven ended his life, you know, going to prostitutes, whereas Bon Jovi's married to the same woman for decades. But we had <laughs> this sort of cultural idea of decadent rock star versus high art. And I always sort of find it interesting because I, I taught from that book for a number of years. So I kept encountering that essay over and over again. Hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah, I hesitated to make the comparison between the Grateful Dead and Beethoven um, just because I didn't. It almost feels like a stretch to compare compare well, the two, but it's interesting the role that music plays in people's lives, and it's interesting too as you come at you and I have you know been interacting for twenty five years. Uh, we there, you encounter a lot of different people who like Bob Wilson's writings, and uh, Tom Jackson wrote about this a few weeks ago that. You know, some people come in from the veterans of the conscious revolution. Some people come in through politics, especially libertarian politics. Some people like me come in through the science fiction angle. But musically, he, there are a lot of different people who, who, who like his writings. And so mm. I've encountered a number of younger people say, oh, yeah, Bob Wilson seems great. But man, he's clueless about music. Okay. <laughs> Uh, and one of the rare times I've seen Bob seem really out of touch, I just saw an interview the other day where he's just trashing Bob Dylan and people who like Bob Dylan. And he right. just sounds like this old curmudgeon. And, you know, I appreciate you know, I, I, we can disagree about things. You know, he, he did not take the Timothy Leary route. Timothy Leary really tried to stay current with music and right. have musical references that his audience would respond to. So he was talking about pop artists up till the end. He talked about a lot of rock artists in the 70s and 80s. Bob liked what he liked. Right. He wasn't right. going to ever try to seem hip, apparently. Um, Primarily classical, but, you know, from what uh, I can gather. Yeah, and it, it, as a young man, he liked jazz. He liked Inagata De Vida. Okay. You know, yeah. uh, he liked... Uh, Scott Joplin played on um, right, rags on harpsichord. Uh, but yeah, mostly you know, it, 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 I think it's in uh, uh, what you call it, uh, Nature's God. He says, "If I had my druthers, I would just get high and listen to baroque music." <laughs> you know, that's what his idea of a good time is. Um, so you know, we, we, we human beings respond to music in so many different ways. And, I, you know, I think about, you know, Brian Shields complained about some of us at Alt Debt founded R.A. Wilson calling us 
neophobes because he wouldn't get on Facebook, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, he and Michael Johnson complained about people who don't listen to any current music. And, you know, it, 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 that that certainly seems fine. You know, we have a limited amount of time and you see what, you know, what music really works for us. Right. Um, I remember. So I find this. Oh, no, just there, there's a there, I, we have a number of deadhead Wilson fans. And I, again, sure. I don't listen to the dead as much as I used to, but I, I remember him writing me that his chiropractor was Jerry's chiropractor. <laughs> and so, you know, just the, the interesting little, little uh, webs we have connecting all these things. So, so what's your favorite dark star? Oh boy. My favorite dark star. You know what immediately came to mind? I believe it, it's the the two eleven seventy or there's several shows in that two eleven two thirteen seventy, and uh, there's one that just sticks out in my head in there. That's uh, maybe not the most out, definitely not the most outrageous dark star, but it's maybe the most uh, musical. I don't know. Yeah, the the it, one on their early morning of two fourteen, which is the two thirteen show where they do yeah. the feeling groovy jam, and that's yeah. on Dick's Picks Four. Okay, that's probably my favorite dark star. Well, that gosh, I think we just maybe named the same one. How interesting. Yeah, I, I can't say I consider myself a huge dark star aficionado in that way, um, but but that's the one that immediately jumps out. What were you gonna say? Oh, just I. You sent me that videotape of Sunshine Daydream, which probably has my favorite one from eight twenty-seven seventy-two. Mm. Yeah, that that whole show was a heat wave mind bender. Um, well, I would just kind of steer us back to Bob Wilson briefly because one of the things I remember, I think it was him that said this. And I might have a, it wrong, but that he did have. Uh, some interest in uh, i believe it was rap music but he was describing about you know when they were kind of off beat so it was like new mm -hmm. information like you kind of expected it to to hit the next beat and and it didn't it was a little off and there was something about that that seemed to capture him in terms of uh it wasn't just the same repetitive thing so to speak it was there's some variation within the beat and that to me, is him just looking for novelty, maybe, and and being attracted to, to yeah, maybe just novelty is a way to say it within music itself. I want to say maybe that was a maybe Logic Academy thing. I don't know, or some interview. I, I want to say it was an audio interview. As I'm scratching around here, um, but there's uh, within Beethoven. If we get back to that, there's like. Uh, not only the highs and lows, but kind of this build of tension and then release. And maybe that's when we talk about conclusions and endings. Um, just the buildup of, of tension uh, described as maybe the juxtaposition of will and fate um, that, that leads to this kind of expressive ending of hope. Does that sound right or am I just making stuff up here? No, that, that sounds that sounds absolutely wonderful. There's a great book by Charles Rosen called The Classical Style, which looks at the music of Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven. And he basically looked at how 
Beethoven uses the musical language of um, Haydn Mozart and pushes it to certain kinds of limits and beyond those. And then, and even during the end of Beethoven's lifetime, composers like Schubert are just breaking those rules. Mm. And so the rules that were set up for that discharge of tension, okay? And part of that is the idea that in the classical style of, of uh, Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven, you would move towards the dominant, towards the sharp keys early in a piece. And then, so you have in the sonata form, you have, have exposition, development, and recapitulation. And typically, exposition would move to the dominant. Then you'd have a lot of uh, modulation in the development section. You'd return to the tonic in the, in the recapitulation. And all that stuff that was in the dominant side is now moved to the subdominant side, the flat side, to relieve all that tension. So you had very sort of clear ideas about how to do that. Um, in, uh, let me just get the piano bench out here. Oh, yeah. In Tretton uh, Haydn's music. Okay. Schubert sort of said, fuck that. And he would just modulate wherever he wanted to. And that Beethoven, even as wild as he got, he still had this balancing between the dominant and subdominant sides. So make sure you have a little seat. So that's dominant to uh, tonic to supertonic to dominant to tonic. Okay, one, two, five, one. If you're going to do a subdominant, you'd be. There you have a plagal cadence moving from the four to the one. So moving something that's going to go to the dominant. There I modulated to the dominant. If I was going to do that again in the recapitulation, I might go. Taking away that dominant of the dominant so there's less tension, like you're sort of talking about. That careful balance in, in tension and release of tension, because the harmonic rules, you know, every generation wants to push. Okay, they push the rules of the previous generation. As they do that, the balances that made that earlier music work don't work anymore. I'll say, so that when the Beatles said, I want to turn you on in 1967, that was like, oh my God, we're really saying it. Okay, mm. no one's shocked by that anymore. Okay, <laughs> when the Who says, who the fuck are you in the 70s, big deal, you know? Mick Jagger says, I want to spend, you're going to spend the night together. That doesn't shock people anymore. As Beethoven pushed the language, it sort of seems with people like Schubert, you don't have to have that balance that we had before. We can be expressive. We're romantics now. And then you've got this next generation of composers. And again, there's a great book by Charles Rosen called The Romantic Generation that talks about this in the uh, 1830s and 1840s, who suddenly the, the boundaries between keys become blurred. So in, in, in Chopin's music, you can be in C major and A minor at the same time. And so what happens is because they're pushing these boundaries, the, the, the forms of Mozart and Haydn don't work the same way because they're set up on these harmonic balances. And that 
falls apart. And so you've got great music, but you know, the, the Beethoven's really interesting. I remember um, uh, I used to teach from a book called Listen by Joseph Kerman. And he, t- he has a whole chapter on Beethoven. Only Kabuzer gets his own chapter. He says, Beethoven was a titan astride two centuries. He's the culmination of the 18th century. He initiates the 19th century. Um, but the question of do we classify him as a classicist or a romantic becomes fascinating. Again, in terms of E prime, it becomes fascinating. Rosen wrote this great book explicitly saying, no, he, he writes in the classical language, but he pushes it to incredible limits or beyond any limits that Mozart or Haydn could conceive of. The only Beethoven book that Robert Anton Wilson talks about is Maynard Solomon's biography of Beethoven, or just about the only book he talks about. Maynard Solomon wrote another book called Late Beethoven. And he has a really interesting discussion. He says, yeah, yeah, we value what Charles Rosen had to say, but in some ways we can see Beethoven as a romantic, especially in a song cycle like Undefended Geliebte. And sort of looking at how Beethoven escapes all these categories, again, which I think uh, Robert Anton Wilson would have loved. And and another thing, and I tried to talk to Bob about this once, and he didn't seem interested. (laughs) Bob talked about how nobody is normal. You know, the normal human being has one testicle, you know, and is half female, half male, et cetera, because the statistical average doesn't exist. Donald Francis Tovey, a great musicologist who had a huge influence on Kerman, although he's very much out of repute these days in the academy. But he wrote an essay about the normalcy of Beethoven with the idea of normalcy being good health, you know, that it's something that we can aspire to being, you know, active, good health. And in this, in this one essay, he talks about how eccentric the most seemingly normal of Beethoven's compositions is and how normal the most eccentric of Beethoven's compositions are. And while hmm. I certainly agree with Dr. Wilson that none of us seem to fit the average, you could see the average or the normal as something of a, a healthy functioning. And so, and this is something I think that Rosen writes about as well, the essential normality of Beethoven as he seems to be breaking the rules. And that music that he wrote, especially at the end of his life, that so confused people, but it definitely has, you know, you can just be radical and make noise, which, you know, you can (laughs) sometimes the Grateful Dead falls into that, et cetera. But the music that people accuse Beethoven of making noise has rewarded so much that people like Stravinsky might love it. Um, um, there's a book by Slominski called A Lexicography of Musical Invective. And there's a wonderful jazz pianist, uh, Phil Strange, who talked about he would play really avant-garde classical pieces for his students. And then he would read bad reviews of Beethoven and Mozart and Schubert. And the kids would say, oh, yeah, you're describing this really weird music by Stockhausen or somebody. Well, actually, it was somebody's response to Beethoven, Beethoven's first play. <laughs> wow. Um, well, not to change gears too abruptly here, but what comes up for me uh, a while back, you said how each generation pushes the boundaries of the previous. And in a way that that says to me that, you know, if we're talking music, music is continually evolving. Yet there's something timeless, it seems, about Beethoven and some others. Is Do you have a sense of that and what that's all about? I think you touched into that with your previous answer, but 
Does that make sense what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. There's a cool, cool essay. I think it's in Cosmic Trigger 3. I'm not sure. Where Bob reviews uh, the Western canon by Harold Bloom and talks about how people have been assaulting Shakespeare for 400 years. But mm. people still make Shakespeare productions. They make movies based on Shakespeare. They still love Shakespeare. Okay. That Beethoven has been under assault, you know, as out of date, as sexist, as whatever. But people keep coming back to it. And that's where I'm struck by how he's still there in popular culture, like Doctor Strange or The Walking Dead. Um, you know, it, it, it's interesting how what was once revolutionary, you know, like uh, I, I think a fascinating voyage is that is the music for Also Sprach Zarathustra by Richard Strauss. So Nietzsche wrote the book, also spoke Zarathustra, thus spoke Zarathustra. Most famous line is, God is dead. Mm. Richard Strauss responds to his tone poem, you know. Stanley Kubrick, who also did Clockwork Orange, does 2001 A Space Odyssey. He's unhappy with the composer he hires, strips the soundtrack, puts that 2001 music from Strauss. It enters the pop vocabulary. So that even today, I will play that music for my classes, almost none of whom have seen 2001, but they hear it and they think outer space. Mm. Then a few years ago, it shows up in an Oreos Thins commercial. Now it's used in uh, car commercials regularly. Um, you, and you had, uh, there's a new a head, or a car commercial where they have a, a bad orchestra misplaying it. And someone rolls up the windows and they're soundproof from hearing the bad version of the opening of Elzo Sprach Zarathustra. Uh, so it's interesting how that, that music keeps marking us. Um, it's also, I think, and, and I, I'm going to write about this on my blog in three weeks for, for, for Tom. Robert Anton Wilson loves George Anderle's statistics about the increase of scientific knowledge. We have a ton more scientific knowledge than they had 200 years ago. But one thing I'm curious is, I don't know that we have more or better musical knowledge. We certainly have different music. Music has changed. But, and I just reread Joseph Kerman's book, Contemplating Music, where he talks about too many music historians, music theorists, musicologists fall into this error of evolutionary thinking. Music changes, but it doesn't necessarily get better. Hmm. You know, so... For rock fans, I don't know, they think, has music gotten better since 73? For hip-hop fans, has rap music gotten better since Tupac and Biggie died? For classical musicians, has music gotten better since the death of Beethoven and Mozart? Right. I would certainly say no in all three cases. We have differences. We have changes. Our ears have changed. But I don't, certainly it's not the way cell phone technology has radically improved. I wouldn't say, oh, my gosh. Oh, Tupac, no, no, no. Rap is today so much better than the way iPhones have gotten better. So music seems to function so much differently than the way uh, mathematical and scientific information tends to change. Interesting. I wonder what came up for me just now is like music as an expression of the culture and just kind of the state of being of humanity. I don't know if that makes any sense, but... Oh. I, I, I think I think I think that you're absolutely right, and I, and I think about that. Um, and here, if, if you if you if you look back a hundred years ago, 
you had these great novelists, um, uh, Joyce, Proust, Robert Musil. And I think it's fascinating the role that music plays in their works, especially Wagner. Okay. And so in Proust, Wagner, I think, provides a model for the whole of Proust's long novel, A Recherche de Temps Perdu. But I think that Proust's favorite composer was Beethoven. So it's interesting, he's different than those other modernists who did tend to privilege Beethoven in the same way. Um, but the, the way that music functions for him is he talks about the late quartets and the idea that people create works of art even though their audience isn't born yet. So the people who value the late quartets of Beethoven above all other music, they were not Beethoven's contemporaries. And it's, Kerman's written about this. There were so few performances of those quartets in the 18th and the 19th century. And then you have Stravinsky calling the Gross of Fugue his favorite music, pure interval music. And, 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 the, and, uh, um, and, and I just think about music that, let's say, you and I might have hated in our youth, but now it plunges us back into those neurological memories. I think about the summer of 79, my Sharona was everywhere. <laughs> when I first entered my, moved into my dormitory at college, I remember hearing that booming down the hall. I didn't like that song back then. Now I love it. I'm 17 again. <laughs> Every time I go get a haircut, my barber is playing new wave music from the 80s and early 90s. And it's like just a high school. I feel like I'm in high school again, getting, getting my hair cut at nearly 50 years old. Um, hmm. So, was Beethoven a member of the Illuminati? It, again, this comes to some really fascinating questions. As a college teacher and a high school teacher, I have to tell students not to use Wikipedia because a lot of teachers don't like Wikipedia. Uh, but I like Wikipedia. I don't necessarily trust it, but I don't trust the Encyclopedia Britannica either. I know if I, I want to know what year Robert Hunter was born, I went to Wikipedia yesterday and I saw, oh, 1941. Maybe that's not true, you know, but I, I guess it probably probably has some truth. If you usually, I, I occasionally try to correct the Wikipedia page. The last time I looked at the Wikipedia page of the Illuminati, they say, there is no evidence for the Illuminati since uh, the dissolution of the Illuminati by the Bavarian government. And I say, well, gosh, you know, Maynard Solomon's a very respected music, music historian, and he writes about how the Illuminati became the Reading Society. They helped finance Beethoven's Emperor Joseph Cantata. You know, and I think about, I've read a fair amount of academic musicology. That seems to me the most respected Beethoven biography. He does not seem, he's not one of us. He's not a Robert Anton Wilson guy saying, oh, the Illuminati, all this. Although, of course, the Illuminati is in Doctor Strange as well. Um, but according to Solomon's, what seems to be sober scholarship, former members of Illuminati reformed, formed a group called the Reading Society. They helped to finance Beethoven. Mm. I don't know that he ever actually joined, but he certainly benefited economically from them. It does seem like Mozart and Haydn were members of the Masons. Robert Anton Wilson cites a book called Mozart and Masonry that has so slogans that Mozart 
and Haydn wrote in their um, Masonic logbooks. It, uh, I guess, just for the backstory for our listeners, it it was one of those things that Wilson wrote into Illuminatus, I believe, that Beethoven yes. was a, a member of the Illuminati, and he came out later and said that he wrote that as a bit of a joke, but then it later came out. Like he just made it up, and then it later came out that there were these connections you discussed, where that he, had, at a minimum, re- received some financial support. Um, and and I, I guess I, I forgot to finish that when I t- tried to correct that entry on the Illuminati in Wikipedia, I couldn't. They have all these protections so that nut jobs don't make changes to that you know uh, page, and so I didn't pursue it. But I, I find it interesting to say anybody can change Wikipedia, but if it's a controversial topic, they have a bunch of hurdles to stop you. Yeah, it's not completely open source, so to speak. It's uh, got some fair amount of controls on it. But uh, let's see here, Illuminati and Beethoven. And it, it, it strikes me, what's the, there's something about Lenin couldn't listen to Beethoven because it made him empathetic and compassionate. And so when I think about the Illuminati trying to change and create a more democratic society, allegedly, um, what we see is they maybe they recognize this this power of Beethoven to create a more empathetic and compassionate world. And as a result, they they want to fund this because they believe it's in line with their goals. Is that I'm just spitballing here, obviously. But uh, well, and I find it interesting that both Richard Rossa and I uh, were born in Washington, D.C. I'm forgetting, but I think his dad was in intelligence. Both my parents were in intelligence. So the question of this whole hilarious thing is part of a big NSA CIA plot. And I know you're not supposed to tell me about that. But, <laughs> uh, I, uh, those who know do not speak and, and I'm, I don't speak because I don't have a clue, but I, I've my time with Richard Rosso over the last uh, year or so, I've, I've found him to be like the underground version of the most interesting man in the universe or the most interesting man in the world. He's he's lived quite a life. So. Oh, it, yeah. It wouldn't surprise me if he's actually an agent for the the underground spy complex, just trying to subvert the something. He, he's going to listen to this and crack up, I'm sure. Um, well, for somebody who wanted to start dipping their toes, for someone relatively ignorant of all this, like me, that wanted to dip their toe into Beethoven, what would you suggest? I'm not going to suggest you. I guess you live in Colorado, so it's probably legal. But, you know, if someone were to get high and listen to that Bert Fangler recording of the ninth or even just the fourth movement, that would be something. Um, Maynard Solomon. The fourth one of the ninth is conducted by Bert Fangler. If you want something really trippy, you can go on to Facebook. And again, Furt Wangler was not a Nazi, but he stayed in Germany during World War II. And there's been some controversy about that. And basically, 
many people encouraged him to stay, to keep alive what was good and beautiful in German culture. But there's a video of him performing the Ninth Symphony for a Nazi crowd with all these huge swastikas behind him. So that's very strange to watch. Yeah. And um, maybe my favorite recording, Maynard Solomon playing Opus 111, the final piano sonata, especially the end of the second movement is really beautiful. And you can find that mm-hmm. online. Uh, but that's really, really wonderful. Um, from a is Wilsonian there... perspective, keep going. From a Wilsonian perspective, after the ninth, I think the Hammerklavier Sonata Opus 106 shows up more than any other. And so you can, you know, listen to the, the couple aspects of, of 106. Again, Maynard Solomon probably has my favorite version of 106. That fourth movement fugue is just unbelievable. Uh, and, you know, uh, I remember the pianist Jim Shaffnett and Jay Jeffries and I sitting around talking about the Hammer Clavier back in 1980, 1980. And Jim said, almost every pianist sounds like they're about to fall off the piano bench and collapse at the end of that thing. Uh, mm. He said that except for, oh, uh, um, Mauricio Pellini, he thought Mauricio Pellini sounded like it. And I remember saying that to, to Rafi Zabor, and he said, well, Solomon doesn't sound like he's going to fall off either. But, you know, listening to that, that incredible, if you can imagine somebody's playing this all at the same time, uh, uh, is just breathtaking. Uh, um, the, the, the Seventh Symphony, I think, is a wonderful entrance point. Uh, and again, there are a number of great recordings of that. The, 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 the um, Fert Wengler recording, from the 40s. Uh, Toscanini has a number of nice recordings of, of the seventh. Uh, Richard Wagner called the seventh symphony the apotheosis of the dance. And so for me, mm-hmm. I just, uh, I, I, I love that music. And just for sheer fun, the eighth symphony. And I think about the final recording, I think that Carion made of that may be my favorite. And it's fun, the metronome had just been invented. And so mm-hmm. Beethoven sort of plays with the idea of a metronome in the slow movement. He has this sort of TikTok sound going on. Oh, how funny. Is there a, a book that you might recommend for the, the introduction? Well, for, for Wilson fans, I love, love, love Joseph Kerman's book, The Beethoven Quartets. It's very technical, but I feel like you can sort of breeze through the technical stuff and get to so much psychological stuff and historical stuff. So it's like, I gave that as a gift to Robert Anton Wilson. I don't know if you ever read it, but we did that as a study group over at um, rawillumination.net. Oh, wow. And so Tom's done such a great job there. And you can go, he's got an index to all the study groups. Right. And so you can sort of see, it's got my little essay on each chapter of that book. And then you've got people, you know, Oz Fritz comes in with his cabalistic analysis. Tom chimes in. And so that's a book I go back to over and over again. Uh, probably my, one of my very favorite books. Uh, and it talks about things, you know, like uh, Beethoven's relationship with his adopted son, his nephew, and, you know, all the psychological things. And a number of things that show up in Bob Wilson's work, like the uh, very last string quartet, Opus 135, has two musical tags, which Beethoven labels S must sign, it must be, and must have signed, must it be. And Bob has a whole series of jokes about that in Schrodinger's Cat. 
And so uh, Kerman has a discussion of that. Also, if you want to look at my book, uh, An Insider's Guide, I talk about Kerman and Beethoven and Wilson. Oh, nice. I had a, a little bird on my ear saying that I need to pick up your book before this interview, and I just didn't get around to it. But it, that's fine. So you have a little piece in your book about that. Um. Hmm. Well, I love that you brought up Tom's blog because the, he's really run a lot of, I don't know what you call them, study groups over the years that uh, I've, I've kind of uh, stepped away from a lot of the Wilson scene until stepping back into it recently. So I, I've been distant from all the activity on Tom's blog, but it seems like he's always running a study group on a book. And uh, you, you and him and Gregory have been doing a Prometheus Rising thing for, it's been going on for, what, a few years now, it seems like. Yeah, well, and, and that's where I, I know you referred to the blog as our, our study group as being too slow and boring. Um, <laughs> well, well, let me, I want to preface that. You spent the first six months of the Prometheus Rising study group uh, doing the quarter exercise. And and I appreciate that that's what Bob said. Let's spend a, six months doing that. And I, I think I was just kind of excited for a Prometheus Rising study group. And then it just uh, didn't move fast enough for me uh, as as that first six months was just all quarters, maybe. And I, pardon my grumpiness on that one. But well, yeah. No, no, it, it's, I, no because I live in Southern California. I see a lot of bumper stickers. I spend a lot of time on the freeway. And a few years ago, I saw a bumper sticker that said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And then a couple of years ago, I saw one that said, God said it, it doesn't matter if I believe it. So I love that because it was a bumper sticker commenting on another bumper sticker. So <laughs> I hope I don't have that sort of fundamentalist Wilsonian attitude that Bob said it, it must be true. But I do have this attitude that Bob said it. I want to take it seriously. And Prometheus Rising has a very interesting place in Wilson's work in that he keeps pointing back to it in all mm. his books after 83 and a number of other essays. He says, if you want to change your life, do the exercises in Prometheus Rising. So my attitude was, if we're going to do this, I want to do it close to the way Bob said. and. Tom shared your point of view. He said, that's ridiculous. <laughs> um, and so like my attitude would be, I want to take five years to do this. And so we were sort of compromised and said, let's do it in 23 months. Where basically we spend six months on chapter one, a month on every other chapter, except for the last chapter, which has no exercises. We'll just throw it. The last two chapters have no exercises. We'll throw those together. Uh, and so we started it on Crowley's birthday, October 12th, uh, 2020, during the pandemic. We're going to finish up on 9-12 of September, which is just under 12 weeks away. Mm, okay, so you're winding down. One of my things, I think, for me is that I was just in like a 10-year deep dive with Bob Wilson from 98 when I really discovered him and went whole hog to roughly 2008 and i i was really i don't remember when i started working on the website there's a interview with tom jackson that probably discusses some specific dates but i created the alt or whatever it was ra wilson fans dot 
.com website at the time, now .org. And, and, and my point being is that I was just pouring so much energy into finding these obscure essays and articles on eBay, and, and it took a lot of work to convert them into digital form and post them on the internet. And then I just, I hit a point where I was just done. Like I felt like I'd had enough of Bob Wilson. And, uh, and so it's just kind of been hard for me to really, I love doing this podcast because I get to talk to other people and we get to dive into other subjects that are influential or been influenced by Bob, but I'm, yeah, I don't know what I'm trying to say, except I probably from 2008 to maybe uh, a year ago, I really just had to, even as I'm, I'm developing the eight circuit stuff that I'm trying to represent as, as, you know, current and modern with the latest and greatest in science and stuff, I'm not interested in going back and reading old Prometheus Rising, I'm not, other than a little bit of research. I'm not interested in reading other people's takes on the Eighth Circuit model anymore. It's like, for me, I've, I've kind of developed my own take on it, and I want to roll with that. I don't know where I'm going with all this, but I guess I'm saying I had a little Bob burnout, and uh, I feel and, like- Amen. I'm... And, and it, I think it's very different when we were Wilson heads, and he was publishing new stuff, it was yes. fascinating to see where we were going, where he was going. Yes. I remember having dinner with him. This is like 94. And I wanted to talk about my Finnegan's Wake study group. And he had no interest. He wanted to talk about he had a Orson Welles study group. So the guy had been <laughs> my digital little Wilson head thing, trying to follow what I thought he was into. But especially before the internet, he would be, this is what, he had written about what he was into a year ago. He had gone off in other directions. So it was interesting to sort of bounce back and forth. And I was, I was thinking about this last week. You know, he passed away 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so that's two years of George Bush as president, eight years of Barack Obama as president, four years of Mr. Trump as president, and now almost a year and a half of Mr. Biden as president. You know, we've lived through some weird stuff. And I remember particularly... A couple, you know, a year after he died, I wonder what he would have made of Mr. Obama's presidency if he would. Because I remember his he had a real optimism when Mr. Clinton was elected right. and then he became disillusioned. And I wondered if he might have returned to some optimism with the idea of oh, this black man's elected. He seems like he's intelligent, personable, doing some good things. But, you know, again, maybe too middle of the road for Dr. Wilson. Um, but I know for me. Remember 10 years ago, people thought the world was going to end? 2012? Right. <laughs> for me, what happened for me in 2012 is I stopped having any sense of the arc of history. The Trump presidency was so outside of what I thought was going to happen that I, you know, my whole smile, Wilsonian, Heinleinian idea. Although I think it's interesting, back in the 40s, Heinlein predicted being called the years we're living through now the crazy years. So maybe Heinlein uh, had, had a better picture of it than some other people do. Um, and so, you know, I, I have found it very rewarding to do this piece rising because these exercises still, you know, make me shake things up and question things. Uh, and, uh, and I, and I, again, I'm struck by Wilson heads who don't do the exercises. 
that Wilson said so much over and over again, do the exercises. And I, you know, again, we, we both met some people who said, oh gosh, I've read this rising changed my life. I've read it 20 times. Have you done the exercises? Well, no. I think doing E prime for a couple years there, when I was very active on alt.fan.ra Wilson, I went into like a strict E prime mode when I was posting on that group. And that was one of the most powerful things I've ever done. Um, I think that that exercise of writing an E prime for, I think it was at least a year and a half, um, literally opened me up to what the third circuit is all about and beyond yeah. to, to a certain extent. But um, I, I was like, oh, because I look at the third circuit as the trickster i think mm -hmm. that, and and by that what i mean is that uh we don't realize how much bias is built into our language and our beliefs but maybe more so our language but there's something it just we don't realize how much our beliefs shape and control us and 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 in that regard i, I feel like it's the trickster it's just the illusion that we're just completely oblivious to and once you open that up like oh and that's, I think, a big part of what psychedelics do is, is kind of open us up to realizing that, hey, we're all kind of stuck in our own perspective. And there's maybe a bigger, broader perspective out there uh, that we're missing. Uh, or, or maybe there's other people's perspectives that we're not even uh, tuned into. But once you start realizing that we each have our own perspective, it's like I can relate to somebody else. Like, oh, you just are seeing this with a different lens. I hate to say that this question of what would Bob think about X or Y, but I would, he always had this message of hope and optimism and faith and like technology and evolution in a way. And I can't help but wonder in our crazy world uh, today, what he would think of social media and politics and all this um, and how he would spin that into some positive message of, of uh, hope. Uh, I'm not asking you to, to answer that question. I don't want you to think for Bob, but it's just something that comes up for me. Um, we were reviewing SOG. I guess Ross is about to re release that. And uh, so there's been a lot of discussion about SOG. And uh, I reread it and listened to some audio that came out along with kind of a companion audio with Lance Basher back in the day. Mm -hmm. And he's... He's kind of upset about the Tenth Amendment and legalizing marijuana and, and things like this, and, and and you know our kind of post 9/11 war on terror, and uh, which which strikes me is just how how good we had it back then, how simple the times were that compared to today, and in a way, it I think it resonates with what Heinlein was seeing in the 40s. I think we're going through yeah politically and economically another uh, long-term business debt cycle or economic cycle that that is uh, very much a mirror of what happened or at least a, a rhyme of what happened in the 40s um i'm just rambling at this point it's good to talk to you yes sir um well Gosh, it's been a good while. Is there any any final thoughts here? You're working on a book straight out of Dublin, and I. It's been a while, but it sounds like to me that's a Joyce book. But maybe it's Robert Anton Wilson and Joyce. Yes, sir. 
and, and I'm going to use my commentary on Prithis Rising for the final section of the book. So it's like I, I plan to have my rough draft done in September. Gotcha. So are you saying like some of what you've been working on with the Prometheus Rising series with uh, Tom Jackson's blog is going to be incorporated in the book? Yes, sir. Okay, excellent. All right, what else? Anything? <laughs> what makes a nightfall of diamonds transitive and what would an intransitive nightfall of diamonds be? Oh boy, the transitive nightfall of diamonds. If I, I think about Robert Hunter loved Elliot and Joyce. And as a grammar teacher, I sort of wonder what, what makes the nightfall of diamonds transitive. That's it. So my first thought is how much I would like to know about Robert Hunter and his influences. For those that are listening, Robert Hunter is the uh, lyricist for Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead. He's a marvelous poet and what was it, Eric? You told me when we started this before we started the interview. Today was his birthday. Today would have been his eighty-first birthday. Wow. Okay. So, so there's some context. Uh, transitive nightfall of diamonds. Well, nightfall of diamonds to me just uh, I think of the starry sky, and it and the sky yeah. is obviously transitive. Um, so if if it was non-transitive to me, it would be like time stopped. Um, which kind of brings up almost like an eight circuit space. Like maybe, maybe a better way to put it is yeah. beyond time and space. And, and there's an interview with, um, Oh, uh, Paul Krasner interviewing Jerry Garcia. Uh, oh, wow. And of course he was friends with Robert Anton Wilson. And uh, it, I, it's not there, but somewhere else, Jerry talks about that dark star being a place that the Grateful Dead got to visit when they played it, which I thought was an interesting concept. There, um, do you know who Rick Rubin is, the producer, music producer? Yeah. There, he has his own podcast now with Malcolm Gladwell, and uh, there's an interview with Bob Weir, and it, I, I recommend it. Um, it's it's fascinating to listen to them talk about the manifestation of music i'll call it, the manifestation of a song um it's a real trippy there's some trippy spaces in that that podcast about how uh well when bob talks or bob weir talks about like he he kind of lives in this what i'll describe as this creative world of music and he says he's just kind of visiting here like as I understand it, visiting the earth, but really almost like an alien living in this creative musical place that's kind of come down to the manifest in the world, or this is his manifest. I don't know. It's trippy, trippy stuff to me. Um, Paul Krasner and Jerry Garcia, I'll have to look that up. That would be an interesting, fascinating interview. Um, and I think that same book may have Craster interviewing Groucho Marx. <laughs> wow. I, I think he did acid with Groucho. Yeah, that sounds like a a Bob Wilson fiction essay. Yeah, and it, 
again, who knows what to believe with these gorilla ontologists? Right, right. Is this a put on or or not? Well, Eric, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Is there, a, in addition to the Eighth Circuit blog, you're contributing on Tom's website? Is there the raw illumination dot? Is it net? I believe. Uh-huh. Um, you have your own blog. Is that something you're active on? I have two inactive blogs. Okay. <laughs> And so I, 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 I this, this actually has worked out very well doing a blog once every three weeks for Tom has sort of fit my schedule and my energy level. So I'll actually nice. hopefully finish up this book. I mean, I started this book right after I finished my last one. So I've been working on it for like 20 years and I've been moving very, very slowly. Uh, and so uh, I look forward to finishing it. Nice. Is that something you've talked to Rasa about publishing with Hilaritas or? publisher uh, i mentioned it to him uh i'm not sure what the legal stuff is uh, with, uh right now i want to finish it i want to revise it and then hopefully i'll find a publisher for it gotcha. but yeah i you know i would love to have it be a hilaritas uh, is there it. any entanglement with the new falcon for you is that i am stuff? not a lawyer <laughs> uh, I, I I I don't know if I should talk about this publicly, but that's where I'll, I'll, I'll let me get this let me get this puppy finished, and yeah. then hopefully somebody will publish it. And again, I, I uh, we'll just sort of I, I just want to get it finished. Fair enough, fair enough. I appreciate that. I hope we can once you get it finished. Hopefully, we can untangle the legal stuff and and get it to the light of day. I say we, but uh, you and whoever needs to do that. Well, and that's where uh, Rasa just sent me an email. We sort of talked about each of these Hilaritas books is a, is a group project. And, you know, he's done the lion's share of the work. But it's it, 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 an interesting network of people uh, that we come in contact with through this Wilsonian stuff. And this is where I've really enjoyed uh, Bobby Campbell's Maybe Day podcast the last couple of years, where you see these people who you sort of see their faces and you and I both went through the Maybe Logic Academy. My challenge comes a lot of people I know through different names. I get them confused. Yeah. So that people had different names in the Maybe Logic Academy. I know, you know, you, I sort of, I knew from before, so I know. But other people, I see them on Facebook with a certain name. And I think, do I know them through Maybe Logic? What name were they there? Did I meet them in Santa Cruz? Uh, I got to admit, I get a little blurred sometimes. I can appreciate that. For, for me, I, I felt like, uh, you know, we had a great community at alt.fan.ari Wilson. We had a wonderful community at the Maybe Logic Academy. And then after that, uh, for me, it was Tribe. I don't remember if you were on tribe.net. I want to say you were participating in there. Um, I thought Crazy, that was. But a- again, as you say, there are so many communities and it just takes time. Yeah. Well, that was just where I found a real home exploring these ideas and having intelligent discussions with people. And uh, and then Tribe faded away and the Maybe Logic Academy faded away. And uh, for me personally, I haven't really found a place where there's what I would call intelligent discussion on these issues. We have Facebook and honestly, I think it's just a horrible shit show, especially the large group. Um, that you and I are moderators of. Um, and I, I certainly 
maybe it's just nostalgia on my part. I miss those old days of those three different communities and and the characters that yeah. came in and out of there. And I have not seen a replacement for that. So I too appreciate what Bobby has put together for maybe day, because it's kind of a, a little bit of a reunion of sorts. And like you said, it can be hard to, I mean, I was like, bandito and cosmic bandito and quantum bandito and then quackenbush and now i'm out of the closet as mike gathers and uh so some people maybe recognize some of those old names and and didn't realize that with me but yeah i get a little lost too i guess that's part of being old eric yes sir i, I, I turned 50 in july so i'm starting to come to that realization yeah i i just turned 60 and so it, it's interesting to sort of see you know what is the role of music in our lives what is the role of literature in our lives in whatever time we have left be it mm. seconds or centuries yeah I, i'm coming up against this feeling like i need to make it's not legacy i think that comes up you know, what is my legacy as, as we start to age? And I don't know if I'm quite there yet, but there's a part of me that just feels like I have something to say and I need to get it out into the world. And it's, 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 I've waited too long already and I need to start doing that, uh, which is part of the reason I've been working on that eight dimensions of mind series. And, uh, yeah. All right. Well, why don't we shut this down? Uh, if, unless you have some final words or another, dark star question for me no that, that sounds wonderful thank you so much for your time that concludes our episode thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed it thank you to eric wagner for taking the time to talk with me and thank you to christina pearson and richard rasa of hilaritas press and thank you to our engineer ryan reeves for putting it all together our next episode, releasing on the 23rd of August, will discuss magical thinking with Lionel Snell, known in chaos magic circles by the pen name Ramsey Dukes. Until then, I am your host, Mike Gathers, signing off with love and cheerfulness. Amor e hilaritas. Bye. Uh-huh.